I'm going to read now from God's Word. Uh, we're starting our series in Malachi. So open up to Malachi, uh, the last book in the Old Testament, just before Matthew. And I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. But we will see it with our own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Thanks for being with us. Uh, as we said, a few technical things this morning, but by the grace of God, we're still here. Give you a moment to uh, get yourself organized. We are looking at the book of Malachi, starting a series on the theme of spiritual renewal for the church. Uh, I'm going to pray that uh, God would speak to us. God, you are a good, loving God, a God of covenant love. You have chosen us to be your people, and you have made us brothers and sisters together so we could serve you and glorify your name. We thank you that you are for us, not against us. We thank you that even when things are tough, we can depend upon you and trust in you. Please speak to us today from these verses that we would be encouraged to be completely committed to you and your work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, a son stands outside a hospital while his father dies of COVID alone. He asked the question, does God even care? A woman's marriage is over. Her hopes and dreams for a long and a happy marriage are shattered. She has to start over again. The stress seems too much. Does God even care, she asks. A mother sat in the corner of her room, looking at her newborn baby. It was her first child for whom she and her husband had been praying for months. The child had been born handicapped. Between sobs, the mother blurted out the question, does God even care? And friends, it is the question that we all ask when tragedy strikes. Someone asked me this very question yesterday. Where is God when my mother has suffered the way she has suffered to her death? It was the same question that the Jews were asking for a couple of centuries long before Malachi arrived on the scene. See, they had had so long to grieve that they no longer expressed their doubt through tears, but with a sarcastic tongue and a weary shrug of the shoulders. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. If you've ever tried open-air preaching or witnessing on the streets, you'll encounter what we call the heckler. You know, the person who shouts from the audience in an attempt to throw you off. Friends, last week we sponsored a Facebook post and it hit a different demographic to the normal one. The hecklers were out in force. The trolls, we call them. You are cannibals, they said. You eat bodies and drink blood. 
referring to communion. Science has discredited religion. Give it up, they said. No one believes in God anymore. Give it up. Get your spam off my Facebook feed. And a little bit more flowery language they gave us last week. The heckler, the troll, who mocks God and mocks your faith. See, Martin Luther, I'm told, the great reformer, delivered the best response to such an interruption. A troublemaker called out, well, what was God doing before he made the world then? To which he is reputed to have replied, making hell for people who ask stupid questions like that, he said. Friends, if you ever face hostile questioning like that, you'll have plenty of sympathy for Malachi, for it seems that there were plenty of hecklers disturbing his attempt at public speaking too. Every time he makes a statement through these four chapters, you'll notice some sarcastic or dismissive retort is thrown back at him from his audience. He introduces a declaration from God and then records the audience's rebuttal. But you ask, but you ask, but you ask, but you ask, right through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And we say the book, the book of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi, is in a disputational style. You see, the hearers don't feel they deserve Malachi's prophetic rebukes. They think they're doing okay. They're not doing too badly at all. And they think God hasn't done very much for them. See, they need spiritual renewal, but they don't know it. So where does this prophet Malachi feed in? He is the last of the 12 minor prophets. You'll find him as your last book in your Bibles. He addresses the people of God after their return from exile in Babylon. The Babylonians had conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, and taken the people into exile. God had said that they would be in exile for 70 years. The Persians then overcome or overcame the Babylonians. They became the new power. And their Persian king Cyrus had a different philosophy about conquered lands. They were willing to send the Jews, the Israelites, back home to rebuild in their own land. And the 70 years of exile was over. God had promised great things for the nation's future. Prophets such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Obadiah had predicted that the people of God would be delivered from oppression. God would usher in a mighty kingdom that will last forever. And some of that came true. The temple was rebuilt under Ezra, and the city walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah. And now it is about 450 BC. You see, the people promised faithfulness to God once again, covenant faithfulness. They will be faithful to the covenant God has made with them. Nehemiah chapter 8 to 10, read that sometime this week. And their promise had not been without effect. They followed through on some of it. There were no more altars to Baal, the false gods. No more cult prostitutes to Ashtoreth, the female god. No more child sacrifices to Moloch. All these abominations were now in the past. It's a new day for Israel. It's a new day for the people of God back in the promised land. The temple of Yahweh was once again the religious center of the Jewish community. No one would have dreamed of abandoning the temple they build it with their own hands. Yet in spite of all of this, they're back in the land. The temple is happening, is up. People are worshipping that Malachi is not satisfied. Malachi has a word from God for the people. Because he can detect a new spiritual 
failure in the people. You see, it wasn't like the pre-exilic period, what they were like beforehand and the reason why God sent them into exile, that they served the false gods and worshipped the false gods. No, it wasn't quite that. But he saw the sin of half-heartedness, the sin of apathy, the sin of cynicism. So Malachi in this book calls the people back to covenant faithfulness. He wants to stir them out of their apathy and spiritual degeneration. He calls them to be real to God and to reconnect with Him. And I wonder whether this is a, an important word for us today. In the middle of a COVID pandemic, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of confusion, is it a word for God to us to awaken us out of apathy and a weakness and a degeneration into a fully committed relationship with God? See, we have <coughs> Malachi, he is a burdened prophet, verse 1. See, the older NIV called it an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The new one says it was a prophecy from the Lord to Israel through Malachi. But I want you to realize that the word oracle that was used here, the Hebrew root means to bear a burden. And uh, Kaiser, one commentator, translates verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So Malachi carries a burden. He has a serious word for the people of God. It's not a light word. It's not, not a, a careless word. It is a serious word. And we need to remember today that God's people are not always happy-go-lucky people because they can see the world from God's point of view. They can see evil and injustice and they feel that. They can see Christians not living out the Christian faith, being hypocrites and pretenders, and it weighs heavier on them. The temptation to half-heartedness, to complacency, to compromise, to worldliness, to indifference. And friends, the longer you've been a Christian, the more dangerous it is to live and to dream and to look and respond just like the world. And I think the COVID pandemic has highlighted this half-heartedness. Sure, we admit it's all been very difficult for all of us. We've all struggled and we've prayed and we've supported one another. But I think it has highlighted this half-heartedness. I think God has used COVID to sift true believers from pretenders. I think God has also used COVID to sift spiritually focused people from half-hearted ones. Some people during this time have drawn closer to God, become more, more stronger in God and more committed to God and more prayerful in God, more reliant upon God and more trusting of God, and others have just drifted away. Oh, sure, they claim to know God, but really they've sort of drifted from this intimacy with God and this closeness with God, they've drifted. Instead of the habits of prayer and Bible reading and witness and showing mercy and gathering to worship with God on a Sunday, their Sundays, for example, look like everyone else's. Walks by the beach, coffee dates, play dates with their children, rather than the worship of God and the hearing of God's Word. See, people are not leaning into God, but they're leaning into the world's. They're not surrendering to God, but they're surrendering to the world's values. Life is tough and we figure, oh, well, we might as well just enjoy what we have rather than draw closer to God and enjoy what He has for us. 
Friends, just as in Malachi's day, for many today, faith has lost its edge and worship has become formal, if any worship takes place at all. Our heart is not in it. We may go through the rituals, but we do not really love or trust in God. And this indifference can become infectious. It was infectious in Malachi's days where people became like each other and they didn't put God first. COVID is infectious and we know that, don't we? But so is indifference, spiritual indifference. Others catch it off you. When you have no interest in God and you show less interest in God, others become like you and you can become more like the world rather than like Jesus. Well, Malachi addresses this problem of spiritual degeneration. It's a book where God's people, Israel, are in the dock and God is charging them and accusing them concerning their spiritual decline. It's like a courtroom scene. God has a word and people need to listen. It's a call to repentance from lax and hollow religion and it shows us a way back to an enduring faith in the Lord Jesus. My friends, let me say that the burden that the prophet carries is also the burden that the pastor or the preacher carries. Seeking the spiritual reformation of the church, even during lockdown, is the burden of the pastor and the preacher and the leader. Even during a COVID pandemic, we believe that God wants to grow us, make us more like Jesus. It is a burden that leads to prayer and to deep study of the Word and Christ-exalting preaching and encouragement of God's people. I was reading a book by John Benton who wrote an exposition of uh, Malachi. He preached some sermons years ago and then he wrote them up in a book. He said this, This devastating little book marked a turning point for our church. Its serious themes rocked us to our boots. Somehow the ailments and ills of the church generally, and of our fellowship in particular, were opened up to us. There was a look on the faces of the congregation which registered what on earth is the pastor going to say next? We knew God was speaking to us as his church. It was a searching time, especially for myself and the other elders of the church, as we were challenged about our commitment and duties as leaders. But it was also an encouraging time. Just as an athlete might feel invigorated by the shock of a cold shower, so Malachi hit us and revitalized us. Our faith and love for our Father in heaven was renewed and stimulated. Malachi had a burden. Pastors and leaders have a burden that we will be revitalized by God personally and our churches will be revitalized to the glory of God. But the first thing we need to realize is that's going to take place. The first thing the uh, Israelites needed to realize that Malachi speaks to them about is that they need to realize God's covenant love for them. Notice where Malachi begins his letter. His response to the compromise and complacency is to remind them that God loves them and God has chosen them to be his people. They are loved by God, but they don't know it. I have loved you, says the Lord. The people weren't convinced of uh, his declaration and they respond immediately, as you've noticed. But you ask, how have you loved us? And the prophet reminds them of their status as the chosen people of God. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yahweh says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And the first thing he does, he stresses to the people of God 
that they are chosen by God. And uh, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 12, when God's election of his people began. It says, I, the Lord, said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God, he says, you're going to need to remember that God is a covenant God. He's made in a covenant with you to love you. He gave them the scriptures, the temple, the priests, the prophets, the covenants, and the Messiah. It's an everlasting love he's given them, even though they failed him time and time again. Friends, in Genesis 25, 19 to 35, God promised Isaac and Rebekah that their two sons would be the forefathers of two nations, but contrary to the usual practice, the older would serve the younger. It was God's choice that one would be stronger than the other and that they would be separated. And we see Jacob and Esau were their children, and Esau handed over his birthright and therefore his inheritance, indicating the initial outworking of this promise in Genesis. God says, I've chosen Jacob, which is Israel, to be my possession, my covenant people. He continues in the line of Abraham. And the descendants of Esau are the Edomites. And the Edomites, you'll see in the history of Israel, did not act in a brotherly way towards them, but rather with hostility to the people of God. But what does he mean when he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That sounds very extreme. Why does God hate Esau? And why does he love Jacob and therefore Israel? Well, the first thing we need to realize is the language of hate and love is a common literary device in Hebrew, a way of making a radical statement as clear as possible. The Hebrew exaggerates to make a point you remember Jesus' words in uh, Luke 14, verse 26? He wrote to his disciples, or he spoke to his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, hates his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus getting at? In a parallel passage in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you notice that? To hate, or it's really talking about loving less, isn't it? In this context, to hate means that love less rather than hating. It means to prefer one over the other. So to love Jacob in covenant language means to have chosen Jacob. To hate Esau means not to have chosen Esau as part of God's covenant plan. What about you? Have you ever asked the questions to God, how have you loved us? You know, many people have come to me in the middle of struggles and said, I don't think God loves me. How has he loved me? What's he done? Look at my life. Look at the mess I'm in, my lack of employment or my wayward child or my devastating illness or my broken marriage or my financial stress or my, my broken family relationships. What has God ever done for me? Or maybe 
you just become spiritually apathetic. You think, yeah, what's God ever done for me? So you're not that serious about it. You say, oh, well, if God's there, if he's there, he's up in heaven, doesn't seem to impact my life very much. Whether through difficulties and adversities or apathy, we often ask that question. You know where I go when I ask that question? I've asked that question too. God, where are you in this situation? God, I thought you were for me. I thought you were on my side. I thought I was loved by you, God. Why am I up in the middle of the morning praying? God, why can I not sleep? God, why? Do you know where I always go when I, I'm like that? I go to the cross. I go to the foot of the cross where the love of the Father is very evident, where the love of the Son is is very evident. I go to the cross where Jesus dies in my place. What's God ever done for me? Does God really care? Let me tell you, he does. Because when you see the cross and the suffering Savior, don't listen to the hecklers. Dying son, what's he going to do for you? No, no. The dying son makes possible our forgiveness and our reconciliation with God. Go to the cross, the foot of the cross. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, no matter what else is happening in your life, you have that secure knowledge that the God of the universe loves you so much that he died for you. I found this poem this week. Naomi Fassa wrote, At the foot of the cross there is healing. At the foot of the cross there is mercy. At the foot of the cross power flows from sinless blood. Love pours to broken hearts. Maybe yours is broken today. From the perfect one, at the foot of the cross, covered by his sacrifice, the Son of God sets you free. Does God care what's God ever done for me? The cross proves God's love for you. But further, Christians like the Old Testament saints are object of God's covenant and sovereign choice, his loving sovereign choice. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to Christian believers, for he chose us in him, I love this, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. In Acts 16, verse 14, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. God works in our hearts. The Father draws us. We come into covenant relationship with him, and we also know that he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Friends, does God care about you? Does God love you? He knew of you and he chose you even before he created this world. Loving, sovereign choice. Adopted into God's family to cure forever. In case though they're not sure that he loves them, he then goes on to say in verses 3 to 4 that he will bring judgment on Israel's enemies. He says, I am for you and I will bring judgment on your enemies. I brought you back from exile in Babylon. My covenant is with you. I will bring judgment on Edom, who mistreated you. So Edom 
Esau's descendants had been instrumental in the betrayal of the Jews in the Babylonian hands at the captivity. They had rejoiced to see God's people in trouble. Instead of caring about Israel, they didn't. And God says, And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Why so harsh on Edom? What did they do? The book of Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, tells of God's coming judgment upon Edom. For Edom failed to show brotherly love to Israel. Let me read just a section of Obadiah. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Friends, when God, it's good to remember, when God comes in judgment upon people, it's because of their sinfulness and their evil. When God comes in judgment upon this world on the final judgment, God comes in judgment because of their sinfulness and their evil. And the only way for escape is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, he says in verse 5, the nations will know that Israel's God is great. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. How has God loved us? Does God care for us? They're asking. God has loved you. He is on your side. He will punish your enemies and he will show his name to be great as he exercises his sovereign reign and rule. Well, let's conclude this morning. We just touched upon the beginning of this book to look at the key theme. But let's be honest today. When we are personally struggling spiritually or the church is in spiritual decline, we ask the question, what is, how has God loved us? Where is God? And we do it with cynicism and coldness and maybe indifference. Maybe out of anger, I was speaking to someone yesterday on the death of her mother. Angry at God because her mother suffered the last two or three days to breathe before she passed away. Angry at God for letting it happen. Where was he in those moments? Friends, there's only one place to go at such a time. No matter what any heckler or troll has to say, it is to the foot of the cross where Christ died for us, where God proved his love. And it is to the empty tomb which speaks of resurrection, of victory over death and new life and eternal life. Come to him today, whatever your spiritual state, 
May the next few weeks be an opportunity for you to renew your commitment to Christ. To have that, in a sense, that cold shower that an athlete, that invigorates an athlete to wake you up. May you listen to the hard words of God and the caressing, loving words of God as you deal with the book of Malachi. And say, God, take me and do whatever you want to do in my life. God, reform me and make me more like Jesus. Give me a passion for you like I've never had before. Give me a zeal for you, God, like I've never had before. Give me a God-exalting life, God, like I've never had before. Help me to lean into you, God, not into the world. Help me to surrender to you, God, not to the world. I challenge you today to be open to God that he would do his powerful work in you.